I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. We believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, the author of the novel Love Marriage. So this is it. Our last chance to offer a referendum on the Trump administration before 2020. This is our elections episode before the midterms. Are you excited or terrified? Can I be both? Yes. Well... And uh, probably a bunch of other things, like most of our listeners. Uh, just to clarify the polling situation for all of our readers who aren't refreshing 538 every 20 minutes, the Democrats are heavily favored to win control of the House, according to their model, while the Republicans are heavily favored to retain control of the Senate. That's basically where things stand. And of course, we know that this is not the kind of stuff that anybody listens to our podcast to find out. You have lots of other sources for that. But what you do listen for, we hope our guests who can talk politics and literature, because, um, and I don't know if you've noticed our policy change this week, we believe that every issue, not nearly every yeah, issue, Yeah, we're getting rid of the qualifier issue, on that. <laughs> we've, we've gone extreme. <laughs> um, every issue has already been covered somewhere in literature. So we have with us a couple of great guests who can help us understand and talk about how literature can, um, can cover something as momentous as this year's midterms every bit as much as the polls. And for that, fortunately, we have two perfect guests. In the second half of the show, we'll be talking to Alexander Chi, the author most recently of How to Write an Autobiographical Novel, who last appeared on the podcast to talk to us about Facebook. And right now, we're going to get the lowdown on the current status of the race for the House and Senate from the writer Jane Coaston. Jane is a senior politics reporter at Box and a co-host on Box's hugely popular podcast, The Weeds, where I listen to her every week. She has also written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, ESPN, and The Ringer. Jane, welcome to the show. 
Thank you so much for having me. So um, one of your areas of expertise is conservatism and not just alt and extreme right conservatism, though you do frequently write about that, but also black conservatism. And a few weeks ago, you wrote a review of Max Boot's book, The Corrosion of Conservatism, that was also a powerfully argued history of how black conservatives left the Republican Party in the 60s. Could you talk to us about what led you to write that piece and maybe read a little bit from it? Sure. Um, so I was really interested in, I, you know, I talk a lot to conservatives and I'm very interested in conservatives who are kind of reconsidering their own relationship with conservatism, because I think it's important to be clear that there, you know, when we talk about conservatism, we are not inherently talking about the Republican Party. And for a lot of conservatives, their relationship with conservatism is very much of a personal one. For example, you know, people are not Republicans or people are not conservatives because they are they you know they want to be tied to like the things that Richard Nixon did but they are conservatives and Republicans you know the same way anyone experiences a political awakening um, for example Max Boot wrote a lot about his own childhood as um, an immigrant from Soviet the Soviet Union and talked about like what he found a conservatism but I was kind of struck by the fact that he seemed to be coming to these conclusions about the GOP's relationships with race that African-American conservatives came to 50 years ago yeah, was, and so that was I, a, I that, like that lead where you're like yeah half a century after many others figured this out <laughs> Right. And so I think that there very much was a sense it, within the book that you know he's coming to terms with this, he's getting into this, he's recognizing this. But even while he's talking about these figures, he, you know, this is not a, you know, we're not kind of coming back to this it, with the spirit of, oh, no one had any idea. People knew. And so, you know, I'll read a bit from the, you know, a portion from the book that I feature in the article. Um, and so this is Max Boot writing, and he writes, In 1964, the GOP ceased to be the party of Lincoln and became the party of Southern whites. As I now look back with the clarity of hindsight, I am convinced that coded racial appeals had at least as much, if not more, to do with the electoral success of the modern Republican Party than all of the domestic and foreign policy proposals crafted by well-intentioned analysts like me. This is what liberals have been saying for decades. I never believed them. And so it, it was interesting to me that he parsed out this idea that, you know, liberals had been saying this, that, you know, but that he just hadn't heard it. But, you know, that wasn't true. These were, you know, African-Americans like, you know, Jackie Robinson were saying at, in 1964, they were talking about these issues at the time. And so um, so I'll, I'll just read a little bit from the piece. You know, this is at black conservatives and black Republicans who are seeing the whitening of the Republican Party and the increased racial extremism of the conservative movement. And so they're protesting outside the 1964 Republican National Convention and lobbying Republican leaders. And you know, one man wrote in a letter to the New York Amsterdam News, any Negro who helps the cause of Goldwater, Barry Goldwater, who was the Republican nominee in 1964, should be de declared anything but a Negro because they will be a traitor to the Negro people. And so I think that they're very much was this sense that people, you know, Jackie Robinson went to the 1964 convention where, you know, one man tried to fight him. Um, and his, you know, I, I write, it's an excerpt from his autobiography from 1972 called I Never Had It Made. And he talks about being at the convention 
It was a terrible hour for the relatively few black delegates who were present, distinguished in their communities, identified with the cause of republicanism, an extremely unpopular cause among blacks. They had been served notice that the party they had fought for considered them just another bunch of niggers. They had no real standing in the convention, no club. They were unimportant and ignored. And so you know, this is what conservatives were talking about. This is what black conservatives were talking about in the early 1960s. And I just, I found it so striking that Max Boot did not appear to know this. And also that a lot of people didn't know this. A yeah. lot of people don't yeah. know this, that, that this is the conversation about one, the relationship between conservatism and the Republican party. And two, the relationship between black conservatives, black Republicans and the Republican party is something people have been contesting and arguing about and discussing for, you know, more than 50 years. Well, when I read your piece, I thought of, I mean, you know, we're a literary show and a news show. And I thought of the, the father and the sort of Greek chorus of female congregation members in Britt Bennett's novel, The Mothers, and we've had Britt on the show, or Tracy K. Smith's father in her memoir, Ordinary Light, or even the narrator in Paul Beatty's novel, The Sellout, you know. So this concept of black conservatism is present in literature, um, but you just, it does not, in, in the contemporary media or thinking of the way people think about the conservative movement, it is not. Is it just because contemporary media is mostly white, you know, or, or is there some other I, I you know, so. explanation for that? I think so, and especially because I think it's very difficult for people to parse out politics that doesn't work on a standard kind of left-right spectrum. Uh-huh. For example, talking about people who might hold conservative religious views but vote Democrat, or talking about people who are, you know, hardcore libertarians and think that the state shouldn't be involved in anything but still vote Republican. Because I think that you know, there's how you feel and how you vote are two different things for many people. And I think that trying to make sense of that and trying to make sense of you know how black voting works and black political involvement has worked, it doesn't tend to work in a way that would be easily parsed out in a soundbite on television. And so I think, yes, you know, the black the concept of black conservatism is it's something that people inherently, you know, people know about this. And, so, you know, before, obviously, everything that happened, Bill Cosby was kind of espousing these ideals of a personal form of black of black conservatism that, you know, if we just act right, good things will happen. And I think that, that that's not new. And so you see that even in the early 1900s, you see that from figures like Marcus Garvey, you know, with this argument that like black uprising and black uplift, you know, not having anything to do with the government. But if we just are really good people, then someday good things will happen to us. And, you know, it, it's challenging because I think that it's been I think in some ways there's a sense of black conservatism and black republicanism being two distinct things. And, um, you know, we talked about this. There was a weeds episode. I'm gonna let you finish. Yeah, that was a great episode. Talk about Kanye. That was, I want, I love our listeners to hear some of the stuff you had to say on that. Well, I think that, I mean, one of the biggest things I tried to make the point of is that this is not Kanye West espousing conservatism. This is not Kanye West being, you know, after a great deal of thought and looking at kind of a Burkean analysis of political (laughs) You know, I've come to believe that the government is more standing in the way of true freedom than acting as a thoroughfare. No, that's not what he's doing. This is 
you know, and there's a view of conservatism in 2018 as anti-left, that it is that that's the only thing is that basically like if the left says jump, you say don't. If the left says go right, you turn left. Like it's it's more it's reactionary. Right. And so I think that that's what you're saying. You know, that's what you're saying kind of from the Candace Owens Owens's of the world and Turning Point USA, this idea of like conservatism as whatever Democrats are not doing. And so it's actually, you know, it's a really shallow and hollow form of conservatism because it all depends on operating on an axis that is the opposite of whatever someone else is saying. You know, it is it cannot operate in a vacuum. And I think, you know, a political ideology and I know that ideology is a very unpopular word right now with a lot of people, but a political ideology needs to be able to operate without any other political ideologies around it. You know, there are a lot of conservatives and a lot of liberals that would be conservative or liberal if no one else was around. Uh-huh. And yet the kind of conservatism we see in, you know, from Kanye or from the, the, this type of conservatism, it only operates in opposition to something else. I'm assuming that in this, just to bring us back to the election at hand that's going to be happening next Tuesday, um, I'm assuming that still the, the Dem- Democratic candidates will get a huge percentage of the uh, black vote. So none of these things that Kanye's doing or this turning point uh, group that Trump was addressing just the other day um, is actually affecting this election. But is it is it going to affect the future in some point? Is there do you I mean, can you say how this will affect electoral politics going forward? I personally, I don't think so, because I think it's a very, um, you know, I I like to talk about people who are, quote, quote unquote, very online. And Turning Point USA is very online. It gets a lot of funding and they're very busy on Twitter and they get a lot of funding from like older, generally white conservatives. But in terms of what people are actually interested in terms of voting, it's very difficult. And I think we've seen this. um, Democrats saw, saw this earlier. It is very difficult to start a political movement that's all based on either a specific, a long-lasting political movement that's either based on a specific personality or an opposition to something else. And I'll take opposition first. You know, one of the challenges with uh, in 2004 was that a lot of people kind of saw the, you know, voting for John Kerry as not necessarily voting for John Kerry, but voting against George W. Bush. And so that kind of politics of opposition, it's easy, but it's difficult in a way. And I, I mean, easy, it's easy to explain, difficult, it's difficult to kind of keep people on board for. And also, you know, a conservatism that's based inherently on support, being supportive of Donald Trump, you know, what happens without Donald Trump in, you know, there is no replacement for him. There was, I think that the, there was this kind of idea of like, ah, yes, you know, people who voted for Trump are going to vote for Mike Pence. And that's not how this is going to work. They appeal to extremely different audiences. And so I think that it's, I don't think it's going to have a big impact also because this is something, you know, turning points, the kind of thing that I know about and you know about and your listeners might know about, but you know, I used to, I like to joke, you know, my parents live in Ohio and I, I I like to occasionally do this thing I call the mom test where I call my parents and ask, like, have you heard about this? (laughs) And they, and it never, they never have heard of it. And, you know, these are pretty with it people in their mid to late sixties, early seventies who are following the news and understand, you know, but if you're following the news, you're reading the New York times and occasionally watching ABC news, this isn't, you know, and to understand turning point takes a little bit more of a deep dive into a very strange political world. Well, I know, Sugi, we need to move on to the next question, but I think we should maybe just define turning point in case there are some moms there. Yeah. 
Yeah, uh, so Turning Point USA is a conservative campus organization. They're actually very controversial among other conservative campus groups because they tend to do things that, um, for instance, at Kent State, there was an instance in which a bunch of students like they had this whole protest where everyone wore diapers. Okay. And it just was the kind of thing that basically, um, you know, I, I, it's the kind of thing, I know it sounds like I am making this up. I am not. <laughs> the kind of thing, it's very trolly. It's very like, all they want really is attention. Like, this is not about trying to like raise the next generation of young Republicans. You know, this isn't young Americans for freedom. This isn't, you know, your campus Republicans. This is, but they do tend to get a lot of attention. And so, you know, they're an attention grabbing campus organization. Yes, there's a there's an internet spiral out there for those of you who want to go on it and don't know about Turning Point USA. But um, I also am so interested to hear you talk about um, specifically the midterms. And so only a few weeks ago, everyone was postulating that the Kavanaugh hearings were going to be crucial to the midterms. And in the past week, we've seen a shocking series of events, including the bombs allegedly sent by Cesar Sayak to prominent Democrats and media figures and the um, synagogue shooting in Pittsburgh. And does any of this affect the state of the race in the House and Senate now, just speaking in purely callous horse race terms? So it, it's actually really funny. Uh, Dave Weigel, who is a reporter for The Washington Post, yeah. had a piece on Twitter. He put up, you know, if you just looked at 538's calculations of the House race, you would think this has been the most boring two months in, like, the last decade because nothing has changed. And so I think that in horse race terms, and you know, I think it, that's a really challenging way to look at politics because we have no idea. And I think, you know, I really want people to start embracing saying that you have no idea about something. We have no idea how individual events affect how people vote. For example, a lot of people have drawn attention to um, the Comey letter right before the 2016 presidential election Uh and whether or not that affected vote totals. However, we still don't know how that impacted how people voted or whether people voted or whether that motivated some people or demotivated some people. There's been some research on the subject, but it's still not clear. So I think that the you know it's really hard to say whether or not that'll affect you know it looks generally as if the democrats will win the house and the republicans will keep the senate but again we don't know honestly you know i think that we've seen historically that especially for midterms the weather the day of the election will probably play a bigger role than current events because i mean it's again but it's really hard to say so Okay, let's just assume, and again, that's one of the weird things about talking about this midterm is it seems like such a momentous thing. It's the first time for people to vote sort of nationally since since Trump was elected, and yet it has been a boring race and has sort of sat in the same place. So let's assume it's going to happen the way the polls say. What else should should or could we be following in this election that would be significant or meaningful for the future? I think something that's interesting is looking at uh, people, Democrats who are running in uh, state and local elections and kind of the language that they're using. I think that something I've I've said before on other podcasts and in my writing is that Democrats are kind of re-embracing federalism and really embracing the localization of politics. And I think they're doing that to their benefit. Um, So, example, during the special elections um, last year and then during uh, the elections in Virginia, 
out in late 2017, you saw candidates winning office in Virginia who basically were like, yes, you know, I'm a liberal Democrat, but basically all I want to talk about is this specific issue that has to do with where I'm running, whether it be traffic, whether it be healthcare. And you're seeing people who, you know, I think that a lot of Republicans were kind of convinced that Democrats were running a very anti-Trump Russia, Russia, Russia campaign. The number one subject Democrats are discussing in these midterm elections is healthcare. Absolutely. Yeah. Like they are spending millions and millions of dollars on advertising on the subject of healthcare. And, you know, when the kind of Twitterati people who talk, you know, like, why aren't you talking about Trump enough? Or are you talking about Trump too much that they're not really talking about Trump at all? You know, and they're seeing some gains because one, people do want, a, you know, even we've seen this even with independent voters, that they do want someone to be a check on Donald Trump. But also that, you know, when you are not in, enmeshed in the news cycle all the time, people are not as interested in talking about the machinations of Donald Trump. They are very interested in how much they had to pay for health care. So I think looking at how Democrats are talking about local and state issues and the types of issues they're talking about is of deep interest. And especially because that's that will be for a lot of Democrats, how they start workshopping what they might want to bring into the 2020 presidential race, perhaps. And that's also, I mean, going back to what you were saying before, just a much more sustainable way of getting people on board. I mean, as if they were sort of employing more reactionary politics, that wouldn't really work as well. Um, I'm curious to hear you talk about the way the GOP has been using immigration and the caravan and MS-13 in the election, just, which seems related to your discussion of Jackie Robinson and the way that conservative black voters have been in the GOP in the 60s. And there have been several articles kind of talking about why Latinx voters haven't been turning out more strongly for Democrats. And I wonder, um, is it that Latinx voters also have a significant conservative block and they haven't had their Goldwater moment yet? Or is it is it more complicated than that? I think it's more complicated than that, because what you are seeing is, for one thing, there has seemed to be for many uh, Latinx voters in California and elsewhere. There is how best to put this. There's been kind of a shifting understanding of how identity plays into how people vote. So, for example, first of all, a big issue is a lot of uh, Latina Americans aren't registered to vote and don't vote. And, you know, I think that that's been, that's a big issue and that's an outreach issue for Democrats and for Republicans. But I also think that for African Americans, there has been decades and decades of seeing their voices squelched out of the Republican Party. While I think that for, you know, we see Latina and Latino conservatives, and there has been a sense, a greater sense, I think, by the GOP that, and it, it's a funny line to walk, because on the one hand, you see people, you know, demonizing um, uh, undocumented immigrants and talking about MS-13 and the caravan, but then you also see this idea of, like, no, that, like, they're, but then they're the good immigrants, and these are the good ones who did it, quote, unquote, the right way, and you see this weird kind of the changings in the personification of what an immigrant is. And so I think that, you know, Latina conservatism, and I don't mean conservatism as in like political conservatism, I mean like generally tending to be more religious and that certain issues that Democrats put forward as being deeply important to them are not something that maybe for some Latinos that's something that, that they feel as well. But I also think that it's, you know, as I said, an outreach issue. But again, it's it's complicated. It's very complicated. And I feel as if it's it does a disservice, I think, to both groups to attempt to compare the experiences of African-Americans and 
Latino Americans because it's the experiences of African Americans in the United States have to be seen through the lenses of you know slavery and Jim Crow, and how the Republican Party worked, you know how the Republican Party benefited in some ways from de jure segregation and from you know conversation you know you kind of see the Southern strategy. There hasn't been quote unquote a southern strategy when it comes to Latino voters. And you know, right. we saw in the GOP we saw in the GOP twenty twelve autopsy how they wanted to do better outreach. And it's fascinating because on the one hand, you see this demonization through Trump of Latino voters. But on the other hand, you see this outreach taking place from the GOP. And but moreover, the biggest thing, you know, I often talk about one of the biggest things you, you need to do in a campaign is you need to motivate your voters but demotivate their voters. And so I think in states like Texas and elsewhere, where you think, you know, oh, people have been like, oh, there are so many Latino voters here. Some of them have not been motivated. And in fact, they've been demotivated from getting involved in the political process. So, Lucan, I really appreciated your your piece for Vox on the history of false flag claims in relationship to attacks like the shootings uh, in Pittsburgh and the and the and the bombings that um that uh, Cesar Sayak uh, carried out. One of the things we've discussed very frequently on the show over the past year has been a sense that an interest in facts has kind of gone out the window, uh, particularly in the conservative alt-right world. Could anything happen on Tuesday that would ameliorate this problem? You know, or is it something that elections can't or won't affect? I mean, would like if there was a huge Democratic sweep, would suddenly the alt-right be interested in facts or is that just a, a stupid idea? And that's why I'm laughing even as I say it. I think that something that's important to note is that, you know, I, I, I like to think of myself as a student of history, even though that's a ridiculous phrase and I shouldn't have said it. Um, but it's better than not being a student of history. It's true. But historically, we are not actually that interested in facts as a species. <laughs> You know, I, so I, true. Often, I often think about, you know, one of my favorite eras of history to think about is, uh, you know, between the 1890s to the 1920s. And actually really research, having a resurgence again after the after World War One and the experience of the horrors of World War One is there is a outright mysticism craze. People lost it. Like people want to go see mediums. Mediums would do things like fake vomiting, like this plasma that they would be like, oh, it's ghosts. And people are like, oh, that looks like ghosts. And, you know, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of Sherlock Holmes, was absolutely convinced in the existence of fairies and could not be convinced otherwise, even when shown that a lot of the photographs he'd been using as the basis for his evidence were clearly faked by small children. <laughs> you know, there has never, there has actually never been a time at which we were all unified on the concept of facts because, again, you know, there's that... Uh, Talking head song, Cross-Eyed and Painless, that talks about uh, facts just get twist the truth around, facts are getting me inside out. That a lot of people, when confronted with, and I think this happens, I think this happens to all of us, that if you believe something and someone says, well, according to the facts, that's not true, that does not make you stop believing it for a lot of people. I mean, that's actually, you know, I've written about how conspiracy theories work. And it turns out just proving a conspiracy theory only makes a person who believes the conspiracy theory believe it more because they're convinced that you're trying to keep something from them. And so 
you know, and that relates to the fact that my, you know, I kind of have theorized that conspiracy theories are more like religious belief systems than oh, based yes. on like facts and evidence. <laughs> you know, people do not become 9-11 truthers because like that, they're like, ah, yes, I've considered everything. You know, they go to resources that tell them already that 9-11 didn't happen in a certain way. And then, you know, they use those as their backing and because it makes them feel better. It's a feeling, this thing. It has nothing to do with facts. But So I would say that, in general, we, we've never really been very big on facts like yeah. as, a, as humans. That exact point is, like, uh, one of the reasons that I, uh, one of the l- not often talked about reasons why I think Trump is so popular with evangelical uh, Christians, because the way that Trump handles, like, you know, belief systems and, and facts and faith, really, you know, uh, not mm-hmm. faith in God, but faith in him or in faith in what you're going to believe regardless of, of whatever kind of evidence you know people bring forward in terms of scientific evidence is very familiar to evangelical community at least in my experience of that community right I think and again this is something um, I think there's been a tendency for people who are not religious believers to think about this and very like ah, this is something I couldn't happen to me it's a, it's psychological as much as anything because you see this happen with people who are very much um, you know who pride themselves on kind of their scientific bona fides that in order to continue to believe something they will find they will disregard any evidence that disproves it and they will find any evidence that will prove it and so I think that it, it's really important to think about this way about how politics has become it's less of a fact-seeking mission and more of a belief system for many people. Yeah, and listening to you talk, I'm also reminded of, um, we're talking about, you know, people ignoring fact and, and history, which is something that Marilyn Robinson, um, when she goes around talking about kind of our present politics, will often remind us that we're sort of ahistorical in the ways that we think about um, like American goodness, which is an optimism I'm kind of cling, clinging to at the moment. Um, and I'm also reminded of, you know, I went to, I went to journalism school and um, the novel that we read at journalism school was Journal of a Plague Year by Daniel. Defoe, which a lot of people, when it came out, just like thought was a, it's you know the history of the plague in London, and people believe it. And when we read it, we sort of read it as part of the history of the presentation of fact. And it was interesting to think about in that way. And I'm curious because we're going to talk about politics and literature with the writer Alexander Chi in a moment. I'm I'm really curious to hear you. You invoked a couple of writers there. If you could talk to us a little bit more about the novels, essays, and poems that that led you to become a political writer, and if there are works of fiction or poetry that you return to today when you're looking to get some perspective on our our present situation? Well, I, I have to tell you, and I, I thought about this question, and I decided it was best to just be honest. Um, I never read fiction. It's actually <gasps> one of my... It's actually one of my great failings. Um, for some reason, I just never, I just don't. Um, but I would say that, you know, it, it, this is going to sound funny, but actually the, the book, um, it's a two-part book, uh, Mouse by Art Spiegelman. Um, yeah, that oh, that's a great I read book that. of literature. I read that for the first time when I was nine years old, and that changed my life. Whoa, um, that was, nine's a little that early for that, but I... <laughs> my father uh, was a librarian, and so he would just bring books home, and I just started it, and that's where everything for me, in terms of my interest in both kind of far-right fringe movements and in just kind of trying to make sense of things that don't make sense, I think that's where it really began for me. But actually, you know, I, I would appreciate from you or any any listeners, any works of fiction I can get into, because at a certain point, you know, you should see my, my desk here 
at Vox is just books about Nazis and books about the <laughs> and books about white supremacy and books about uh, criminal justice reform. And it's it's been it's, it's a personal challenge. I'm aware that I have a personal limitation that I do not read fiction, and it is not a good thing about me. I know that. <laughs> <laughs> well, now it's the confessions episode. Um, I mean, I think people get scarcely criticize you for citing Mouse, which is one of the most brilliant. I mean, that book. Um, I feel like which which is rightfully taught so much. Um, I think has been influential for so many people. If you like graphic novels, you could try Persepolis. I actually I've started Persepolis and then I got distracted and have not yet finished it. <laughs> that is another. I'm just going to tell you all. It's, it's I have challenges with finishing things sometimes, especially books that I should finish. I don't know. I think it, that books are you know you should only read them if you want to. I start books all the time and throw them on the floor and don't finish them. That's kind of I don't think anybody should be forced to read a book that they uh, they don't want to read. Well, well, I appreciate your support. <laughs> are you are you are you a rereader? Do you go back to Mouse? I reread a lot. I think that that's something that I do pretty often. Um, I find that very comforting, especially to reread words that I have had in my head for a long time. And I think that that's something, um, you know, at home we have a pretty extensive bookshelf, but there's a bunch of books on there just I haven't yet touched. And then there are so many books I just go back to again and again. What are some of those? I think that that, um, I actually, this is going to sound funny, but there's... um, her name is Mary Roach, and she writes about science. I kind of yeah, of course, about science, and I just find her work so interesting because she talks about sex and death and the corpses and the military, but she does such such in such a human fashion that I find that I that's something I want to emulate in my writing, making things that are terrible make sense, even if they do not inherently make sense. And so I think that that's something that I really. You know, when you're a writer, it's really helpful to read other writing um, from someone else just to get out of your own head or see how they approach something. And I found that that's been really helpful. Well, we should definitely have included creative nonfiction on the list. That was a that was a was prejudiced by Sugi and I to not include that form <laughs> since we both teach it as well. And it's just the same as, as fiction or poetry. All right. The time has come, Jane. Your predictions for Tuesday. What's going to happen? So. Again, I, I believe that we should all embrace the power of saying, I have no idea. So I'm going to say, I have no idea. Because we don't know, you know, what if there's a random, you know, a lightning storm in Georgia or like floods in Utah or something happens. And so after 2016, I just got out of the business of trying to predict anything. I think voter turnout will be very, very high. I think that's about all I'm willing to say. Okay. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Jane. And we really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us about this. And we encourage our listeners to check out your work on Vox and on Vox's excellent and informative podcast, The Weeds, where you were joined by Ezra Klein, Darylind, Matt Iglesias, and Sarah Cliff. Thank you guys so much. Thank you. Bye. We're thrilled to have Alexander Chi here to talk with us about the midterms, activism, and political writing. Alexander is the author of two novels, The Queen of the Night and Edinburgh. His essays and stories have appeared in Tin House, Slate, and Guernica, among other places. And his most recent book is the amazing essay collection, How to Write an Autobiographical Novel, which Publishers Weekly just named one of its 10 best books of 2018. Alexander, welcome back to the podcast, and congratulations on that. Thank you. Thanks very much. I'm really pleased about it. It's great to have you, and that's a well-deserved honor for that book. Um, As the novelist, 
Mohsen Hamid says in a recent New York Times Bookends interview, fiction writers who claim their writing is not political are simply writers who seek to disassociate themselves from the politics furthered by their writing. Alexander, your most recent book of essays deals partly with your experience as an activist. Could you talk a little bit about that and about the ways in which you think of this new essay collection as a political book or about how you understand this relationship between the personal and the political? Sure. I was teaching a story the other day uh, by a former student of mine who's, uh, whose first story was uh, published in one story and then nominated for the Kane Prize. Uh, her name is F.T. Cola. And it was an interesting experience to, uh, to be reading that with my students and have them observing how each sentence of that story it's called a party for the colonel uh details uh for the reader this very complicated relationship that south asians had to uh apartheid uh in south africa Mm. at the time and their role as a kind of uh essentially uh, an aid to uh to the white uh power structure there um while while never actually also experiencing uh, like full liberation in relationship to that, so always the promise of like uh, having at least more than uh, than say uh, black South Africans, and uh, and it it's a it's an incredibly political story in just about every sentence, and in every sentence it is always in the. Uh, always in the the descriptions of the ways in which people speak to each other and uh and it's i'm incredibly proud of that story uh for her and it was thrilling for me to see at the time because it also uh it also you know is relevant to the way in which uh you know i think asian americans uh, now, Asian American activists in particular, like in relationship to that Harvard case, for example, right. um, how how I see a lot of Asian American writers and thinkers trying to interrogate their relationship to both whiteness and uh, and blackness in the U.S. now. Um, so it's you know the question of what makes something political is uh, is very complicated and intricate. Um, and I, I think sometimes we default to some of the more overt expressions of it. But I certainly agree with what uh, Hamid says in that. You know, I was uh, after you after you sent me that quote. I went on a little bit of a hunt for what he's been saying recently, and he was. Uh, I found this interview with him in uh, in the Guardian, where he's talking basically about um, Pakistan. And, uh, you know, looking at America and Europe and telling them to look at Pakistan if they want to see where things are headed, um, if they don't address what what is going on for them at home. I'm excited to read the story now. It sounds amazing. On that note, I think it would be great to maybe preface the rest of our conversation uh, with you reading from one of the essays in your book, uh, one of my favorite essays in the book, which I've been using with my students this semester. And the essay is called On Becoming an American Writer. And the title is an homage to our mutual former teacher, James Allen McPherson, who taught all three of us and who wrote an essay with the same title years ago. 
And if you would read us just a little bit of that, that would be that would be so great. Sure, thank you. Students often ask me whether I think they can be a writer. I tell them I don't know. Because it depends first and foremost on whether you want to be one. This question is not as simple as the as it seems. The difficulties are many, even if you truly want to be a writer. What seems to separate those who write from those who don't is being able to stand it. I started with writers more talented than me, Annie Dillard had said in class to me when I took writing from her in college. And they're not writing anymore. I am. I remember as a student thinking, why wouldn't you do the work? What could possibly stop you? I began teaching writers in the fall of 1996 at a continuing education program based on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. I called it the MASH unit of creative writing because you can't turn anyone away from your classes there. The program pays instructors what it has always paid them, even now, 20 years later. And they do so because there is always an MFA graduate like me who needs a first teaching job. And every other place that offers writing classes in New York is more or less like this. But I loved my students, and what I still value of this experience is that it was there I first discovered that good writing was, as Annie had said to us, very teachable. Talent mattered less, and it was made to seem to matter. I watched in my first classes as I applied techniques I'd been taught to students who seemed at first to be unlikely writers, and they turned into excellent ones. I learned a different kind of humility there in the face of their efforts, which I think still serves me as a teacher. You don't know who will make it and who will not, and students' previous work may or may not be an indicator of what they can do, good or bad. Most of what Annie had taught me was about habits of mind and habits of work. As long as these continued, I imagine, so would the writing. I will always want my students to know that if what you write matters enough, it makes no difference where you write it, or if you have a desk, or if you have quiet, and so on. If the essay or novel or poem wants to be written, it will speak to you while the conductor is calling out the streets. The question is, will you listen and listen regularly? Teaching these classes, I also learned what could stop a writer. So many of the students in my classes were stuck. Some were struggling with a story they both wanted to tell and had forbidden themselves from telling. Some were struggling with a family story that they believed, if told, would destroy their family or them or their relationship to the family. A close friend to this day will not write the novel he wants to write about his late mother, who was closeted until he came out to her, and then she came out to him. He is afraid of the reaction of a single cousin. Why does the talented student of writing stop? It is usually the imagination turned to creating a story in which you are a failure, and all you have done is failed, and you are made out to be the fraud you feared you are. You can imagine the story you might tell, or you can imagine this other story. Both will be extraordinarily detailed, but only one will be something you can publish. The other will freeze you in place in a private theater of pain that seats one. These writers were, are, in many cases, people who know how to write. What they don't know is how to become unstuck, how to leave that theater they've made for themselves, how to stop telling themselves a story that freezes them. I discovered I needed to teach not just how to write, but how to keep writing how to face up to who you think is listening. Is the person listening more important than you? Or is the story you would tell more important than you? I was teaching how to stand up and leave that room in your mind so you can go and write and live. But the question after that always is, live with what? And one answer was always going to be, 
America. Oh, that's great. Thank you very much. It's so interesting Thanks. to me in that phrase of how to become unstuck, teaching someone how to, how to, how to do that. I noticed that in the answer you gave to us when I, I was asking you about the politics in your book, you mentioned a student story and you know deflected away from your own work, which is a very decent quality of yours. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I mean, we're asking you on here because the elections are about to come up. They're incredibly important. And you are and have been for a long time in your life one of the most politically active writers that I know. You know, you're... Facebook feed and your Twitter feed are always talking to people about what they can do and how they can get involved. Um, and we're going to get to some of those specific suggestions later in the podcast. But I guess it, what I just realized, you know, and, uh, is that I, I, did, I never thought about this, but I, I'm going to ask you this. You know, it seems to me like you're saying in a way implicitly in that passage and in what you and the way you answer the question that teaching writing is a political act also. Yeah, most definitely. And I think, uh, I think, for example, uh, James Allen McPherson, our teacher, actually believed that quite deeply. Um, that uh, not just not just teaching that writing, but also lifting those students up uh, afterward, writing letters of recommendation for them, putting them up for awards. Uh, you know, all the ways that you could support them, the way that you can support them, you know, is about changing the culture. Yeah, changing who gets to write a story, uh, uh, which changes who gets to hear the story as well. I know that both of you have had experiences of this in your life, and, and, and I have too. When you write something that actually does make a difference politically um, in some small way, and one of the things that I discover that I do with my students a lot is try to convince them that this can happen. That there is that writing is one of the few ways to uh, leverage power if you don't have money, right? In other words, it's it's the it's it's thing that's available to the people who are without power because you can write it as you said anywhere. It can the story can come to you anywhere, um, and yet sometimes those stories can make a difference. Do you ever talk to your students directly about that? And I also wonder if Sugi does too. I mean, I I don't. Uh, let's see when I'm teaching them I think uh, it's not something that I like start the class with say but I, I would say I build it into the class um, you know the uh, I'm trying to think of you know, even just even just the idea of what a fiction class can do for a student for example especially in a in an undergraduate context you know, um, I talked to them about how it's very difficult to tell a story that you don't want to tell. Right. That you have to find something that you really want to tell in order to tell it well and tell it all the way to the end. And and that in that sense, studying fiction writing, whether or not you go on to become a professional fiction writer, teaches you how to know what matters to you mm. uh, and it, and how to think your way around it as well uh, and, to, and to use your empathy and your imagination in the same process and when you talk about in your essay um, teaching writers to get up and leave that theater of pain that seats one I mean is that what you're is that what you're telling them 
Can you uh, can you can you boil it down to a sentence that will save us all, Alex? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know that question of like who is listening, who do you think is listening, is huge. It's a huge question. Yeah, you know, and the you know one writer, uh, Blanche McCrary Boyd, who's uh, the Tomb of the Unknown Racist just came out this year. It's kind of an unsung hero of the season as a novel. Um, you know, it's the end of a trilogy for her that she's been publishing and working on for 20-some years. And she's a, a lesbian activist. It's about a lesbian activist. Um, it's about white supremacy and terrorism. When I met her in the 80s, she had a great answer to the question of, like, who is listening, which was to just always imagine that you are speaking to the most intelligent person you know and when you're writing a story. Mm-hmm. And never to think of anyone else, and that everybody else would would catch up, you know. Uh, Marilyn Robinson had a kind of a funny answer, sort of an answer to the same question uh, that I recall, you know, which was more about the question of like, how do you write if you think your uh, if you think your family is going to read it, you know? And she said something effective like, you close the door and you imagine that every Everyone you know has has died and could never respond, um, and it's a terrible tragedy. And you just must go on without them. And then you open the door when you're done, and they're alive again. And it's a miracle that you've written the thing that you, <laughs> <laughs> you've written the thing that you had to write. I think that's so. roughly that's that's like a pretty good description of like. I mean, do you feel like that's what you do? I feel like I feel like that's a pretty good description of what I do. Um, sort of in the same way that when I go to the dentist, I sort of like fill every minute until I'm actually lying in the chair with work so that I can't think about what would happen. I mean, I'm actually not that afraid of the dentist, so it's maybe not like the best metaphor, but I think that <laughs> I just like, you know, I try not to, in a, in a way that I'm sure is in some flip side problematic, I sometimes try not to, I try not to think about consequences when I'm writing or not to think about consequences for me at any rate of what I'm writing. And, um, I don't know. It's to think about um, when you were what you were asking about just kind of how we talk about this in the classroom. And I mean, I remember Jim McPherson talking to us about you know, he would really explicitly encourage us to kind of write about big things. Um, yeah, as would Marilyn. Yeah, uh, it was why she wanted us to read uh, theology, philosophy. You know, she wanted us. I remember her saying that she wanted us to think bigger than just the sort of like domestic drama even if we were going to still write domestic dramas at least we would have these <laughs> these other themes in our mind so um yeah. while we're talking political american political novelists i thought i wanted i wanted to bring up uh, an article that was in lithub our parent and partner um by susan uh, zakin if i'm pronouncing her name right called why america's best political novelist is required reading in 2018 and she says that that novelist is Ward Just, whose work I'm very familiar with. But she also goes on to say, um, American writers long ago ceded the ground to international authors such as Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, Camila Shamsi, and Gail Fay. What do you think of that? Is it true? Are there no more American political writers left? Or are there others that you think should be on that list than Ward Just? <laughs> 
Uh, it's a loaded question, Alexander. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I still get to laugh at it. I'm going to put you <laughs> on that list. I'm going to nominate you to be on that list. First. Uh, well, you know, I think that like it's the uh, it's, the question is always like, what do you think politics are? You know, and uh, it's I I with all respect to Susan Zakin, who um, I who I do respect tremendously. You know, I. I don't know that I see her argument exactly. You know, I think um, I've certainly had conversations uh, about how the American literary establishment often turns to uh, international writers of color before they turn to American writers of color uh, to yep. celebrate. <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, you have... Uh, the the sort of elevation and celebration of uh, these writers who, I'm, and I'm not taking away any of their literary qualities, but like we have homegrown writers of color who are treated as minor regionalists uh, uh, of a very minor kind uh, by the same literary establishment. Uh, and so that's, you know, what's going on, whatever's going on with Ward Just, you know, there, there was a, thinly veiled shot about like you know uh, how if he were more successful we might call what he has privilege and I, I saw that line and I thought oh no he has privilege for sure like anybody who can be quote unquote ignored for that long and still be publishing novels is doing just great I think I also wonder in, if maybe in this she economy was, yeah if she was defining a political novel in this very narrow way, meaning that it was specifically about politicians, you know, because I don't think that's what makes a novel political, that it, that it has politicians as characters, you know. I mean, is that what Ward just writes about? I don't Basically, actually know his work very well. Yeah, his, he writes about, you know, like the inner circle of Washington, D.C., politicians, people involved in politics, ambassadors, that kind of stuff. You know, that's what his work is about. Um, oh, I see. But I think if you were to look at, I mean, you know, I say, I would say, well, why is Claudia Rankine not, you know, a political writer? You know, um, I, you know, I would tremendously a political writer. Yeah. yeah. Or Yusuf Komenyaka. I mean, what, you know, the, how come that's not politics? And so, anyway, I that's right. where that's I what I mean about like, you know, anytime that uh, anytime that the writer is also engaging with identity, uh, it's often certain establishment types will treat it like it's not really political quote-unquote i won't see that point yeah should should people read war just more sure <laughs> <laughs> we're sort of um, it's not this is not really you know, a referendum on war just this is an opening I'd, to bring in other writers that right, we think yeah. could be involved in i that don't actually right i don't know I, I can't tell you how happy i am that like first of all i just love having you on the show um also i mean i think you know that point about like the sort of thin, the centering of whiteness, the unspoken centering of whiteness always. Um, and the way that that's coded in sort of like, you know, the things that are marginal and the things that are not marginal, the things that are, or in this case, the things that are considered political and not political is so important. And I think I remember reading Camilla Shamsi's Guernica essay from a few years ago, where she talked about, you know, she was writing about the storytellers of empire, which was a call for writers and novelists to kind of avoid American imperialism and, and to look sort of uh, introspectively at the effects of American imperialism on other countries. I think one of the things I admire most about your work is the ways that um, you challenge people to also read better. Um, 
and to think about the ways that not only what we what we write but also how thoughtfully we read um and and you you know also purposely when you were reading from your essay you ended with you know and one of the things we have to live with is america so i'm really interested to hear you talk about that i was very moved by a story that someone told me uh while i was on tour of uh, a couple in south korea one was a, a white american soldier the other was uh was a, a gay south korean man and they had a book club meeting in their home and invite, invited their friends over uh, and chose my book uh, as the book that they were going to read. And they did so because they wanted to test uh, the reaction of their friends to the material to see whether or not they could be out to them. And uh, that was just a kind of... Uh, it was really amazing to me to... Uh, have created a book that could play that role in their lives uh, all those years ago. And and it's it's the kind of thing that, again, like, what do you see as political? You know, um, the is, there's a way in which I'm, I'm sure because, you know, my first novel doesn't deal with the effects of empire, it might fall into the category of what Camilla Shamsi uh, is criticizing here. Um, you know, and I also know that, uh, certainly like, um, there's, there's a way in which, you know, when you ask, uh, American writers to go and write about, you know, what our soldiers are doing overseas, that, that work often gets criticized for being, uh, as, as colonialist as, as the soldiers themselves. It's very difficult to try to dictate the terms of somebody else's literature you know like what is the what is the writer going to write about you know i i think that american parochialism uh comes more from publishing than it comes from the writers Mm. uh that oftentimes people act as if these books just aren't being written uh when the question they should be asking themselves is, are these books uh, just not being published? Uh, or are they, are they being published and then no one is talking about them? You know? Yeah. Uh, and that's, uh, that's another conversation, you know. Um, that I do think that's interesting to talk about. Yeah, like w- whether or not people, whether or not publishers think those kind of works will sell, you know. Um, I mean, right. including like, Iraqi's points of view in The Good Lieutenant was not something that guaranteed to make the book sell better, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. No, exactly. This is exactly. Yeah. Uh, your work is the right example point. for that. Yeah. All right. So to bring this home to the current election, which races in your area, Alexander, on the East Coast and around New York, and I guess we could include New Hampshire. Are you are you watching most closely? What issues that seem to be most on folks' radars there? Well, I mean, here in New York, I think we are very concerned with uh, getting rid of uh, what's called the IDC, the Independent Democratic Caucus, uh, which, quote unquote, which was not particularly, it was only independent in the sense that they were Democrats who caucused with Republicans in Albany and uh, prevented most progressive uh, changes from 
happening in the legislature. They were supported by Cuomo in this process, and uh, it allowed him to, uh, to to act the part of the defeated progressive in office. So <laughs> he could say, well, I wanted to do it, but the Senate just won't let us do it. And then, yeah. uh, you know, uh, so and this little uh, charade has been going on for quite a while. Um, the corruption involved is uh, is pretty disgusting and, uh, you know, involves like uh, state money that these candidates have or these uh, officials have have accessed uh, inappropriately. And uh, anyway, we want them out. It's it. I think the thing that one of the message, one of the messages or lessons of the of the last two years is the importance that liberals need to place on local politics. Yes. So uh, we have allowed uh, for too long, uh, you know, everything from the school board to the town council uh, to, you know, going straight on up to be left to uh, the right wing. Cynthia Nixon's campaign was, uh, I think, widely misunderstood by people who are not in New York and also still misunderstood by people in New York. She did exceedingly well for a political novice. You know, his little uh, defeated progressive campaign just didn't hold up to the intense scrutiny that she regularly provided. And it says a lot that his support for the IDC caucus uh, collapsed uh, as soon as she pointed out the relationship. I think that's such helpful analysis. So much of what Sri Lankan activists that I know and respect have talked about for years has been kind of like a really, really long arc of planning, um, which seems to me like it sometimes comes up on the conservative side and less so um, for progressives and even for, for liberals, which I would identify as distinct populations. And like listening to you talk, I'm just reminded of the ways in which like, of course, I want progressive candidates to win, but it's also true that like, like I feel like Cynthia Nixon's campaign, as you say, like made a difference. It illuminated things that needed to be illuminated and she didn't win, but that also was still so important. You know, we're, we're taping this episode um, the day after the Tree of Life synagogue shootings, which were so tragic and awful and, um, and which were in some ways incited by a kind of... Um, by by racist rhetoric and of course like the migrant caravan also being connected to that it's getting a lot of attention and it's given Trump another opportunity to prey on anti-immigrant sentiment um you know, he's again sort of talking about the wall and how do you think that that uh the tree of life shootings and the caravan will factor into the election it's a real wild card to be honest uh it, it's such a huge tragedy it's staggering uh to think about, I, I think that, you know, I I was in shock yesterday. I'm still in shock about it. It's, you know, these people were uh, pretty much almost all over the age of 50. Uh, and uh, some of the, by, you know, by account in terms of like, the, as the stories are coming out about them, uh, just like astonishingly gentle and wonderful people and it's but they were targeted because they specifically had organized to help immigrants yeah. right isn't that the deal isn't that the name of well, the society that he that the that the shooter was upset about in his social media posts 
you know, from the beginning, uh, Trump had anti-Semites in his uh, campaign and his administration, even as he also had very powerful, uh, very powerful uh, Jewish people as well. And, you know, a lot of a lot of uh, people on Twitter pointed out that the, the shooter at the synagogue uh, hated Trump because of his uh, his Jewish son-in-law and his his daughter also having converted, uh, also now a Jew. Um, so it's it's just this like weird uh, knot of these things that he created in these different spaces, or that he elevated in these different spaces that have met in this horrible way, and uh, and so it requires. Yes, voting, but also like all kinds of repudiation of of, of this horrific uh, behavior. Yeah, just to- and just to, just yep. as a point of fact, um, it's so it's that um, he was talking specifically about HIAS, yeah. um, which was planning a Shabbat ceremony for refugees in locations around the country. That's according to the to the Times coverage of it. There's a big story about it. Um, yeah, a man with Bauer's name had posted anti-Semitic statements on social media before the shooting, expressing anger that a nonprofit Jewish organization in the neighborhood that has helped settle uh, helped refugees settle in the United States. So that that's from the post. That's what I'm looking at. Um, and yeah, I think it's um, you know voter suppression is seems like also a huge a huge concern, specifically in Georgia. Um, Twenty seven states actually. Uh, according to the, you know, there's a independent journalist named Greg Palast who's been on the case, and his efforts have been getting more attention recently. Uh, but yeah, it's not. It's no one should think it's just Georgia. And, well, we're going to have Missouri's going to have a voter ID, uh, you know, law that is now going to be. It's been used in some smaller elections, but now this is the first sort of major election that that'll be happening. And there's also been a lot of stories in Kansas about how they closed down all the polling places in Dodge City, which is a very heavily Latino town, and then put one polling place sort of outside of town that has no access ex- but to public transportation. So there's been a lot of that going on around here. I was greatly uh, heartened to see that you know Lyft is offering uh, free rides to the polls on election day. I think we all have to do more. We all have to think about becoming uh, not just uh, not just people who say go vote, but like people who do a, just a little bit more in advance to make sure that all this happens. Like talking to the people we know. Uh, about, you know, if the state has a voter ID law, do they have their IDs that they need? You know, um, Wisconsin just threw like uh, several hundred thousand people off the rolls there as well, for example. You know, it's because they have this system there where if you if you move, uh, they, they send you a postcard. And if you don't respond to the postcard, um, then they take you off the, the voting rolls. One of the things that I really like about, and we appreciate, I appreciate it uh, about what you talk about in post is that you very often are offering like concrete things to do. 
Um, yeah. Other than just saying I'm mad. I mean, when Trump does something does, does something that is infuriating and then people post that I'm mad, I'm like, well, that's not really going to do a lot of good just being mad. Um, and I wondered if you could talk about that, Alex, you know, practical things that we should be paying attention to between now and November 6th uh, as voters. Sure. You know, I think um, there's uh, there's certainly been uh, a campaign promoted on Twitter by uh, an activist by the name of Celeste Pewter, who uh, who has talked about her like adopt a senator campaign where you find a senator in a close race and you do what you can to help them. Can you uh, donate money? If not, can you donate some time? Can you uh, text uh, voters for that person? Can you make phone calls for that person? If you live in that person's uh, area, can you can you go door to door for them? Um, uh, you could also get trained as an election poll worker um, and do that also, for example. I saw a young person, 17 years old, who had gotten herself trained. She can't vote in this election but it means a lot to her. This was her way of contributing. She signed up to be a poll worker. Um, there's a lot of these kinds of c- civic things that we've all neglected while we've been staring at our phones for the last 15 years um, that need our attention, basically. Um, so I think uh, certainly there's been a lot of conversations about how young people have... Uh, have got to get out and vote and the, how the 18 to 35 age group is the least represented in terms of voting. And that's so, the podcast. Hey. That's our podcast biggest demographic. So you're speaking oh, to them okay. right now. <laughs> well, you know, I think certainly like there've been a lot of moves to delegitimize the votes of college students. Um, so, you know, there's a lot you can do as a college student still to see how you can protect your vote. It's uh, certainly going to be a demoralizing hassle that comes near the end of the semester or, or the end of the term, but it's also just so incredibly important to get it done. You know, I've even considered, uh, you know, giving my students permission uh, to miss class if it turns out they have to in order to vote. Certainly a lot of, uh, a lot of the, the sort of social pressure uh, of... You know, do you have your voting plan? Uh, Posting about that on social media, uh, that also helps. And people who haven't maybe thought through how they're going to vote can see what you've done to prepare to vote. And that will help them to prepare to vote and even put it on their radar to do. Those all seem like great concrete things we can do as we head into the midterms and, as you point out, beyond. Um, Alexander, thank you so much for being with us. It's always um, heartening to talk to you. And um, I have to tell you this morning, I was I was in a totally grumpy, grumpy mood. And I was like, I'm going to look at, Al- at Alexander's book to see what we can talk about. And I immediately felt sort of so much better. That, um, <laughs> so if you haven't, if you haven't picked up this book, um, or Alexander's other work, we encourage our listeners to do that. And also, to get out the vote. And Alexander, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Uh, I appreciate getting asked back. It's nice to talk to you guys. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. 
Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the fiction nonfiction podcast page is listed under the news tab. We'll post a link to the books we referenced this week there on Facebook at FNF Pod and on Twitter at FNF Talk. Happy reading, and don't forget, on November 6th, you got to stop reading and vote. <laughs>